Good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight. This is Shannon Fisher, your host. My show is The Authentic Woman. We offer perspectives on the female experience in America. Tonight, we have a very special guest, Lois Bromfield, who is one of the comedy greats. Lois has had an amazing career in comedy. She began as a stand-up comedian and toured the country doing her act, She also did many performances at the Comedy Store, which is where a lot of famous comedians and comedic actors get their start. She's done writing and production for television shows for major networks, uh, ABC, History Channel, Discovery Channel, HBO. She wrote for The Roseanne Show, Grace Under Fire, The Drew Carey Show. So Lois has really kind of been in every aspect of the entertainment industry as far as comedy is concerned. So I look forward to discussing all of those details with her tonight. I'm thrilled to have her here. The timing of this interview is somewhat bittersweet because the person that introduced me to Lois years ago, Steve Moore, uh, passed away last weekend. And so we'd like to honor Steve and send our best out to all of his family and friends. He was a, a comedy great and he and Lois very supportive of one another's work in an industry that can be really cutthroat. He was dear to both Lois and me and we love him very much so we talk about him a bit at the beginning of the interview and this was recorded right before he passed away so I hope that he's listening from the great beyond and enjoying the interview. So, Lois, thank you so much for being here with me today, and I cannot wait to discuss uh, your adventures in comedy and your career and how you've gotten to where you are and where you're going from here. Thanks for joining us. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the show. It's our Janet. Janet Fisher, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, it's great. So we can talk about comedy. So how did you break into comedy? I understand, you know, it's it's more difficult for women than for men in comedy. How did you manage to, to break into the biz? I don't know. I didn't have an education, so I figured it was the best thing to do. I mean, everybody in my family was funny, and I was, I mean, we just made jokes. We just joked our way through life, so seemed like the natural thing to do was to do comedy. But so how long, how long did you do the stand-up circuit? I mean, I guess everyone kind of has to do that as a, a rite of passage. I mean, you don't have to do it, but down in the 80s, that was kind of how it went. That was like the course you had to take. I mean, I didn't do the road that much. And, and then I, I, I would go and I would perform and then I would uh, come back to Hollywood. So the comedy store, that seems like a real home for comedians. It's just a warm place where you can go and, and people really support one another. At least that's what for, it seems from the outside. Is that what you got when you were doing things there? It's like, uh, it's like if you go to a, a diner and it looks really beautiful on the outside, there's lights and everything, and then you go outside and there's dead people in there. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's like, somebody, it's almost like a, uh, comedy store has this appearance that's really tough inside. I mean, it's really competitive. I personally don't think the punks really, really helped each other. I think that there was competition, it was fierce. The rooms were very dark. It was a really, strange atmosphere. It was a very strange atmosphere. I mean, you'd walk in there and it was just like a war, you know, who gets on first, who gets better spots, who gets to be in front of the cast of people. I mean, it was a fight. And the, the friendships you made mm-hmm. were really, I mean, when, they, when you made a friendship there that lasted more than five minutes, it was a big deal. So I made a lot of great friends at the comedy show, but it took work, you know, because you, you had to find people who weren't jealous of your success and people who really liked you, aside from your career. Yeah, I would imagine that that's difficult because you're always in competition with one another. Yeah, you, yeah. yeah, you are always in competition, but I managed my friendships, and, you know, today I can say, like, boy, Pam Madison, who is an incredible, great 
be able to do it. And Steve Moore was one of the one guys who did that at the beginning. It's pretty, pretty incredibly brave to have him go up on stage and talk about AIDS and talk about being a gay man. Really, really, really courageous. And he did that years ago. And since then, you know, I think, uh, it's pretty remarkable to see that there's like Julie Goldman, who's a really well-known gay woman. And there's, and of course, you know, all the people up that are fans of Rosie O'Donnell and Ellen DeGeneres, all of that, you know, really laid ground for, um, just the freedom to be able to talk about your lifestyle and your life and, and general audience. Day. Sure. So that, that yeah, is really huge and it's coming up. It's getting bigger and better really good to see that's wonderful that really is so so steve's work was really kind of groundbreaking and yeah, yeah. that would be it very... really was i mean steve Moore was to, to get up on stage and say i have hiv i'm hiv positive was was really brave i yeah. mean I, I couldn't do it you know i couldn't get up and talk about my life at all and i just never did and my comedy was never about myself but stevie was really really brave and and then all the comments that followed and all the people that now it seems like it's good for a gay a gay audience I mean, it feels like it's really open and great, but there are places where it's not, but it's, it's still growing. So, bravo. Yeah. yeah. Um, so do you think that the, that there was a prejudice within the, between the comics as well against homosexuals? I think that they just didn't, I don't know. I mean, I don't think they thought it was any different to be a gay comic than to be a straight one, but it was. Because mm-hmm. the straight comics talk about anything universally. The gay comics had to try to find a subject that was universal and it was hard. Right. It, 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 the subjects were different, and the comedy was totally, where you derived your jokes from was different. So if you're, you know, when Stevie got up on stage and said, I made you be positive, that's where he had to come from. He's really not going to say, you know, uh, I never got, you know, late my whole life. He's not going to say whatever he's going to say. Right. He's going to come from an honest place, but that's what it's about. You know, it's like a, uh, a African-American comic is going to talk about growing up in a black family. Yeah. He's not going to talk about... You know what I mean? You know, they're gonna, you're gonna know what's close to you, what if you understand and know. I mean, look, Stevie is what, five, maybe five, six tall, wears a bow tie, and he's got an accordion, he's talking about being gay. He is, he is so lucky he made it to his car. Because in those days, there were some really homophobic people in those audiences that I'm sure wanted to kill him. It's true. For that. Yeah. So, he is the bravest man I know. A male friend of mine and I decided to put on ball gowns to go for a drink. <laughs> And so, you know, so we're, I think, I think I had like a Marilyn Monroe wig on and I had this long ball gown and he was dressed to the nines. And so it was very clear that he was in drag. And so, of course, they assumed that because I was with him that I was in drag. So these people assumed that this was that you know, we're two drag queens walking down the street in Williamsburg. And they, they stepped on the accelerator and rolled down the window and started screaming expletives and calling us faggots and telling us to watch out. And we ran and got into my car and sat there in my car. And they sat there in the truck behind my car just waiting, just just sitting there. Um, and then finally they drove off. But I don't think that I've ever been more terrified in my life. And I was just thinking, we are just two people who just came off a stage and thought... Well, we're dressed up for the show. Why don't we just do a little more and go get a drink at the Greenleaf? You know, and it's really scary. That is really, really, really scary story. Yeah, really creepy. Yeah, it really is. Wow. And so, you know, you talk about Steve leaving the comedy club and and going to the parking lot. I can completely identify with that. And and I'm not even gay. You know, I mean, just it's just that that mindset of you are different, therefore you are not worthy. and I think that that has terrible. to be overcome. It's yeah. terrible, beyond belief. Yep, it's really horrific. Yeah. It really is. When I, I never said, I never came out of, and ta- said I was gay in my shows. I didn't have the guts, honestly. I didn't. I, yeah. To be honest with you, 
I didn't have the courage to do it. And I talked about everything but that. But then when I did, when I would go and work in the gay clubs, of course, I talked about it publicly on occasion. And then he said, I'm sitting on Hall Show back in like 1989, 1991, or whatever it was. You're doing the, the stand-up bit on his show, and, and yeah, the audience couldn't take it. Oh, wow. I went to the panel, and he said I thought I was gay. And they oh, oh. Hey, hey, people are so stupid. I said, oh, what's that? Oh, as if I said, I killed my parents 20 minutes ago, you know? <laughs> That's the same small contingent of people that um, say women belong in the kitchen. And, you know, I mean, it's the, it's the same idea of if you don't fit this certain mold, then you're not worthy. And clearly, that is not the case. And so many people are going on to have so much success in so many fields, you know, despite odds. Yeah, it's, it's very it's concerning to hear that kind of view, point of view. And so what do you do? You know, I just, I just hope I never run into them. I'm just always happy if I don't encounter those people in my life because they're just poison. Yeah. Devil. I don't think we ever did a comedy show together. We never did our act together. We did stand on the road together. And we, I would perform and he would perform separately. We never performed together uh, on the road. We did stuff at the comedy store, fun stuff together, but we never did a road, an act that was like considered a team act. No. Comedy store was a great launching pad for me. And certainly it gave me, yeah, it, made, it gave me visibility and, Exposure, yeah, and so you went from that to writing for television. Yes, I went to writing TV, but didn't want to go on the road, so I wanted to stay in Hollywood and write. And then I, uh, and then I got a job on Roseanne, hired me as a staff writer, and that was just the greatest break ever. How did the, how did that happen? How did you get that break? Um, I asked her in 1980. Her show, her show started in 89, I think, or 88, 89. But in 1987, 88, when she did her her HBO special which kind of launched her into her series. I knew her from the comedy store, and so she asked me if I wanted to be in the sketch that they were doing, and I said yes, and then that kind of just, I just became friends with her. And I have a recording of that skit that you were talking about that you did for Roseanne. Let's play that for the audience. exciting because you already knew you were funny so you just had to figure out how to transfer it into the television format yeah that's right i mean the thing is about comics is they're not necessarily writers they stand up totally different you're writing jokes the writing a script i had you had to learn yeah exactly what you said you had to learn format 
and the jokes really were not that significant to learn how to develop a character and how to write a, uh, who your protagonist is, and you had to learn, you had to actually learn how to write. So the jokes come at the end. The jokes are like, uh, the jokes are more or less like when you have a Christmas tree and you just hang the, the lights on it. That's, the jokes are like that. Right, yeah. That's a good yeah, analogy. It's really interesting when you learn that, but a lot of comics would come on the writing staff and they just know how to write. So they were sitting there not saying anything. It's like, I don't know what this, what this process is. I was really lucky that Roseanne said to me, you have to learn how to write first. <laughs> well, you were motivated because you didn't want to go on the road anymore. You were done with the road. But there are some people, I understand, that absolutely love it and do that for, you know, 30 or 40 years. They're just always on the road doing the comedy circuit. Yeah, I couldn't stand it. Yeah. Friends who lives in New York, Michelle Ballin. She's a really funny comic. But she has literally, she's on the road all the time. She's at home, it's rare. Like, she'll... She'll, uh, on Facebook, she'll say, I'm home, I'm only here for a week, but I'm going somewhere else. She's on the road 90% of the year. It's just a lot. I mean, I give her a lot of credit. I couldn't do it. Yeah. And, uh, especially at this age, at this point in my life, I really don't want to do it. It's like, I, I want to go home and I want to watch Jeopardy. Sure. <laughs> but if you go on the road, it'd be just the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who cares about Jeopardy? Well, I think with age, you earn that right. I think you do. I think we all do. As, as we get older, we, we earn the right to, to make those kinds of choices. And, I think that's great. So how many how many shows did you work on? What did you, you work how long did you work on Roseanne and then where did you go from there? Roseanne was three seasons. I was there ninety one through nineteen ninety five, three and a half, almost four seasons, and then um I went to Grace Under Fire and then uh, a bunch of other shows in between because the trick was getting on a show that was either existing or getting on a show that would last longer than one season or last longer than a pilot. So uh, I worked on a bunch of a two carry show for a half a year and uh, I mean, I've got a ton of shows I've been on, uh, just on and off of them, you know? Right. And um, and I wrote on a show at ABC called Life's Work and tons of other stuff. You know, I left California in 2001. Right after 9-11, I left and went to Toronto, which was one of my first executive producing job running a talk show. It was really great. I loved that. So what? how did that differ? I mean, it sounds like obviously it's a performance and it's in the entertainment industry, but how, how did that experience differ as far as what oh, you did day to day. It was so different. It was so different. I mean, when you're writing on a show and you're sitting in a room and you're collaborating and you're writing a script and, you know, you're going off and writing scenes and blah, 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 all that, you know, you're just doing the work. It's like a factory. When you're running a show, you're you're literally running it. So, you know, you're saying, okay, I want the sets to look like this. I want these, want these guests. And, and you're sort of in charge of everything. It's, it's really huge responsibility. It's really, really fun. So, you know, you get to decide what the show looks like. You get to decide how you want it to, uh, just the tone of it, the theme, the guest, everything. You get to do everything. It's really great. Then you have to convince the network to let you do it. And that was the fun part because they pretty much did what I wanted to do. And, and I did that for a season, for a year. And that was a great experience. It gave me a ton of confidence that I needed to go on to do other stuff, you know. But that was the, that, that, that experience I think I really loved doing that show. It was fantastic. And, it was a fairly successful talk show. It was a late night talk show, an hour, and the host was uh, Maggie Casella. She's a Canadian comic, really well known, Canadian comic, and yeah, you know, she did a monologue at the top of the show, and then we just had guests, and it was hysterical. It was fun. It was oh, really that's fun. that sounds fun. like fun. Yeah. It's always yeah. fun to work with people that you like and respect. A sense of levity. I think that's great. That's fantastic. So, what, what yeah. made you leave? What made you leave Toronto? To go to New York. Yeah. That's <laughs> always a mistake. When you, when you leave a nice cushy job and you realize when you, when you're 
then when you leave and you're in New York, well, what did I leave there for? <laughs> New York City is like a bad, bad relationship. New York City's like, go everywhere else and it's like a nice relationship. You date, it's nice, you get flowers, you go out, you know, really great, sex is fun. And then you go to New York and it's like a bad relationship. Such a roller coaster nightmare. The rent's high, the city's dirty, the people hate you, and then the food's great, and then there you make some friends, then, then you see a fabulous play. It's like, it's a nightmare. It is, you know? Go to New York and you make, you think you're making a great living, but then you turn around every month and you have nothing left. I've had a lot of people that have, that I've known that have moved to New York say the exact same thing, that it's a total love hate, that there's so many wonderful things that you can't find anywhere else, but that there are also just so many horrible things, like the fact that you have no money left over at the end. <laughs> you never have money left, and it's just incredible. And, but it's, a, but I kept doing it. I kept going back, you know. I went to, uh, in 2001, and then I was there until 2005, and then I just, but I worked for HBO for three years, and that was great, but I still didn't have any money. It was like, I tell people at the HBO, they go, wow, you've done really well. I'm going to die. <laughs> I mean, coffee, you know, that's sort of what. So, my stand-up there, I worked for HBO, and then I, I don't know what else I did. I did a couple of other things for Logo, and then I just kind of said, I can't afford anything. I'm out of money, constantly yeah. out of money. So, I left. So breaking back into the stand-up, was it difficult, or did you just kind of pick up where you left off before you went into television and just, you know, started working clubs? Oh, I didn't really. I just kind of worked the clubs for fun. I didn't even make money doing stand-up. I made a little bit, but not a lot. I didn't really get back into it full ever again. Yeah. I didn't get back into it again until, believe it or not, until I lived in Germany, Germany, and it was really fun there. Audiences are notoriously kind of not funny. So how how was it uh, delivering to a German audience? It was great. I actually have a clip of your performing for a German audience telling the story of a language mishap you had that is absolutely hysterical. So let's play that to the listeners for a moment. Yeah, I mean, you guys, do you know anything about Canada? You guys kind of like, Germans like Canada, don't they? Everybody's, <laughs> we don't like you. It's great. It was really sweet. But I made a lot of mistakes here. Um, the first um, year that I was here, I really should be speaking more German. Uh, I was in Nuremberg, and I was shopping, and I was really happy because I had taken a class in German. So I thought, oh, this is great. And I go into a card store, and I'm looking, and people are talking to me. I'm going, oh, hello, hello. I think hello is a big language. Hello, with an A, hello. I'm, I'm, like, a, I'm like a clown, you know, a German clown. Guten Tag, Jules, guten Tag, I'm an idiot. So I'm happy. So... So I walk out of the store, and there's a man sitting on the street with his dog, and he's homeless man. It's freezing. So I take uh, some euros out of my pocket, and I throw them into his hat, or whatever it was. And what I wanted to say was, feed your dog. But instead, I said, eat your dog. <laughs> I think eat your dog is as good as I did. And he went, <laughs> I had no idea what I said. So I walked home and I told my friend, what did I say? He said, it's your dog. But I went back and the dog was there, so I was like, I've done such stupid things. So the audience seemed to really appreciate your humor. I think it's great that you can reach uh, across language lines. The first job I had over in Germany was uh, in a little city called Bonn. And Bonn is actually where Beethoven was born. And it's really interesting because the city is really cultured, you know, really highly cultured and it's small. And it's really super, super old. But for some reason, it was so great. It was like a cabaret atmosphere. And it was cabaretish. And you could see that, that when they were doing a comedy show, they had, like, you know, strippers. They had guys and 
That's right. great. But, and so they got the jokes and they... Okay. The, the, German, the young German people speak English. Everybody under 40 speaks English. Yeah. A lot of people learned English in school. And then a lot of people in Germany married... Uh, there's so many army bases there that they married Americans. So a lot of people in Germany have American spouses, you know. And and so my audience was like Austrians and British and, and Russians and people from all over the world sitting in the audience. I met a Russian couple that spoke perfect English. Like, you are so great. We love you. You're so funny. Yeah, they got everything. I blew me away. I couldn't believe it. Okay. So it's amazing when you find out how much the world knows about our ridiculous culture. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty shocking. And so, yeah, I had a great time. In fact, I'm going to go back. Wow, you've had such a wide variety of experiences. So when you were working with, at HBO in New York, what were you doing there? I was working with Judy Gold. I was doing, uh, like, uh, I was writing. I was writing uh, jokes with her, for her, mm -hmm. and writing questions. She was, she did a show called, what was it called? I don't know what it was called. It was like an interstitial two-minute little show uh, for movie, movie reviews. Mm -hmm. So she would go and ask, we'd go to a theater and we'd set up a camera and she would ask people what they thought of movies and make fun of them, make fun of their answers, you know? Right. And so that's what we basically did. So I was like a writer-producer on that for, I guess it had to be three years. Oh, okay, yeah. So you so you still, you had you had the steady gig while you were there. So what made you decide to leave that? It was over. The show ended. Oh, okay. The ended. The show got canceled. Right. So you just kind of dropped out of comedy for a few years and uh, just yeah, kind I of... Went to, I went to Richmond, Virginia, well, you know. Yeah. I went there. My life became like, I just... Yeah, it sound, sounds like you needed a break, you know, because that's really intense work, the kind of work that you're doing. And do I remember that you did a um, a web series? Next year, I am going to maybe try to do a web show. I think it'd be fun. Yeah. So what kinds of things do, are you writing now? I'm trying to write a story about when I took care of, uh, I'm trying to write a movie. I haven't written a movie script in probably 10 years. And I've decided to go back and I'm trying to write the story of when I took care of Missy Shore's kids. And Steve and I took care of them in California mm -hmm. years ago. And I'm going to try and write that story as a comedy movie script. See if I can do it. Because it's, because it's, it's just, it's keeping, it's in the back of my head forever. And it's a really funny idea for a movie. I just got to figure out how to, how it translates, you know? How sure. It really good. Yeah. So I'm going to do that for the next four months. I hopefully have a movie by the end of the four months. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, you're you're traveling back and forth between Germany and the United States several times a year. But that's that's good kind of travel, you know, doing some work there, doing some different work here. You were recently up working with, was it the Discovery Channel and the History Channel doing production up there? Yeah, I was doing reality shows with them. And then uh, that was really good. When I got to do post-production, that was fun. It was great to be able to learn that. I kind of learned it. I didn't really know what I was doing when I walked into it, but I was hired by a, a pretty great show guy, runner, and then my friend, my second job there was with A&E, that was my friend Todd Broder. Todd is, Todd is this 35-year-old, great, smart producer, got his own company, and he hires me because he loves to hire old ladies, so I love him. <laughs> really open and smart, and so. Oh, that's so, great. You know, rare. So, so what? What were your experiences like editing post-production of a reality series and deciding what to put in and what not to put in? I'm, I would imagine that that would be quite a difficult decision to make. Yeah, because you just want to cut everything. <laughs> you don't want to leave anything in. That was the hard part. It was hard. And both those shows are 
one show's gone, one show's still existing, which it is, we will say. But, I mean, it's, and all these reality shows are just so, I mean, if I was a male, I'd be so insulted by the programming on some of these networks. I would. I'd be like, excuse me, I'd like to watch something that's intelligent. Right. I don't want to watch a bunch of guys cutting fish open, you know. So I would I would try to make the guys smile. I, would, I mean, I would inject my opinion into each cut they made. So I'd make the guys smarter. I'd yeah. Say something profound. Well, he's sketching a catfish. <laughs> <laughs> it's really fun. You know, so I'd have to say something like, you know what? My mother saw me now. She thought I was an idiot. Oh, I am an idiot. Like, I would do that, you know. Right. So yeah. when you were producing the talk show in uh, in Canada, what? how did you make the decision of who to bring on as guests and and what topics to what topics to use because i mean you've got all these shows to fill how did you how did you come up with those ideas i don't know you just do it figure out your talent who's really popular right now what's going on we did all that research before so you find out and the best part was to find out who's in who's in the city who's promoting something or you know who's doing a movie premiere and then you would grab them and have them come on the show so but that's the that's the work you know the work is sitting and, and mapping out your shows that's what we did that right away we mapped out like almost all the shows right away do it in the first two weeks yeah try to do it and then if somebody comes into town then you cancel somebody to bring that person in but yeah it's it's, it's a wide challenge it's really really fun to do I like it I really did good so that's what we kind of do it's pretty basic it's not that exciting <laughs> but I guess I guess the people who don't have never heard of how it works well, but see, I mean, it's kind of like that with this radio show, you know, coming up with guests and who to invite to come on and uh, that type of thing. So, you know, you want to entertain people and you want to um, have the audience want to come back for more and more and more. So having guests on like the wonderful Lois Bromfield, uh, who is entertaining to the world, you know, I mean, because I really think that your career story is interesting to everybody because it's just, I mean, you just started out and then you just bam, 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 and bounced around everywhere. And here you are at a point in your life where you've done so many things in the entertainment industry that you could basically do anything. I feel like I'm doing, anyway, then I... Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of people care. I really do. I think a lot of people care. I mean, so many people dream of being in the entertainment industry. And, uh, you know, I mean, there are a lot of struggling comics out there. So is there any advice that you would give to people who are, you know, just now starting on the comedy circuit and possibly touring or possibly even just, you know, doing the open mic night, any advice that you have to them on how to uh, to break in and really build a career out of it? Well, I, I got advice from people, and my one big advice was don't take any advice <laughs> from anybody about your stand-up, about your comedy. You can take advice about how to, you know, how to connect with people and what to do, but as far as stand-up, but the actual comedy itself, I say don't take any advice. You know, so with George Carlin said that. I don't know. I think, uh, I don't really, I, I hate to say this, but I don't, the, the comedy world is structured for the men and it's not so structured for women. So I just try to help women as much as I can. And so do you so. think that that's been consistent, that it is still the same way now as it was 20, 30 years ago, that it's the, still the same culture of kind of a boys club? I think it, it's still basically that way. But I mean, there's a hell of a lot more women. I mean, it's tons more than when I started. And there's, I mean, Chelsea Handler and all the other women who are just Sarah Silverman, all these great, smart, strong totally hugely funny women. Yeah. Tina Fey, I mean, there's a ton more. 
and it doesn't have anything to do with looks or body or anything else. It's just got to do with pure and pure funny. Talent. And so I think that it's t- since I started, and it's just like a bulldozer now. It's just like the men can't, can't, you really can't, you can't have that stupid opinion anymore, that argument. You can have the opinion, but you can't really have that argument. The women are funny, and the women are funny, shut up. Right. You're just an idiot if you say that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Women are great, and I know, there's tons of women out there on the circuit. There's tons of women doing comedy who are sad. It was be funny. I, I would say it wasn't harder when I started, but certainly when I was doing stand-up, I spent the first years just men yelling at me on stage because I was a good-looking young woman and, and doing stand-up, and I really got hassled a lot, a lot, for a long, long time. Yeah. And then as soon as I started to get sort of older, then I actually could be funnier. It was great. I was sort of permission was given to be funnier because I went to, because nobody wanted to have sex with me anymore, so it was great. It was totally freeing. You know, that is, it, it's upsetting on one side. <laughs> yeah, it is upsetting, but that was, unfortunately, that was that was how it was. Yeah. It's like that now. I think it's different. People have kind of learned. But I'm sure still some really good-looking female comics get yelled at. I'm sure it still happens. Oh, sure. You know? Sure. Now, I understand that there is a skit that you are famous for that is on YouTube that people still talk about. It's like legendary. What What is that particular act? That's that's Sorority Girls from Hell. That's a video I did in 1987, and it's the gay community that really supports it. And I guess the straight, I guess heterosexual communities support it too, but there's mostly gay men that made it popular, and it was just this uh, thing I did in my act, and it became sort of a cult video. Uh, it was produced by NBC back in 1987. It just became popular. I don't know how. It just kind of, it kind of ended up in all the gay bars, and they played it, and the characters, I mean, I just went to a club a few days ago, my friends. And I got recognized from my video. It's like I'm a hundred years old now. And I was twenty something when I did it. And so they said, "You love us?" And I was, "Yeah." They said, "Well, we love your video. They still play it. It's such a huge. I can't believe they still play it. I mean, it's ridiculous." So I have a recording of Sorority Girls from Hell, and there are sound effects in the background from the actual skit. I think they add to the audio recording. I posted a photo of you dressed up as Irma as part of the slideshow that's running. They should be able to envision what Irma looked like. And so let's introduce to the audience tonight, Sorority Girls from Hell. Hi, I'm Lois Brownfield. Boy, did you see the prices on this menu? Boy, this guy must be rich or something. Probably went to one of those fancy colleges. I hope he doesn't ask me about college because I never went... So, Lois, tell me, where did you go to college? Well, I never went to college because I used to watch these movies about college life. Right. <laughs> I came home from school one day and I was sitting watching this B-rated movie. It's kind of like a horror film and a college thing all together. And it's called Sorority Girls from Hell. And it starts off with the first three characters in the film. And you see them in the hallway, right? And it's in black and white, made in the 50s. And they're wearing, like, white lipstick and big beehive hairdos. And they chew gum and smoke cigarettes. And they wear, like, real tight skirts with a suit the side. And party pumps real tight blouses and pointy bras. And stuff sticks to them. And their names are, like, Donna, Sandra, and Lori. Real tough. And they'd stand there and some guy'd walk by and they'd go, Hey, Bob, why don't you come on over later and see us? <laughs> and they were really tough and really awful. And every time you'd see them in the film, you'd hear their theme music. You'd hear this. <laughs> so when you heard that music, 
you're never going to see the three gals, right? So in this film with these three gals was this one gal who was really weird, right? Her name was Irma Munson, wore big glasses, real stringy hair, really awful, carried her books like this. She was really smart. You could see her on corners and stuff. And she had, like, short hair and glasses and, like, pimples. And she smelled like food and stuff. And she was, like, really weird. She had cooties the whole bit. And she wore her nylons backwards, which is real tough to do. And she wore a really long skirt with a pin through her skirt, through her leg, and back through her skirt again. Every time you see her in the film, you'd hear her theme music. You'd hear this. Dun, dun. have it sorority girls from hell that is absolutely hysterical and i love that it has stood the test of time and is still famous to this day it's wonderful so it was really a big deal I was like, wow it's just unbelievable you're still playing that's just a testament to your really talent i mean that's that's great and and because this happened before the internet i mean that's even more impressive to me because you know if it goes on the internet things can go viral really quickly but i mean we're talking about vhs tapes here you know that people were having to to use to play in clubs and so that's a that's a lot of work for people for that to to get around so i think that's fantastic that uh that you're legendary for that i mean there's so many things that you've done but that is that is the indelible mark uh on your career i think (laughs) yeah
we love you so much. They call me Irma, which is the main character. We love you, Irma. We love Irma. <laughs> so it just got really poppy. And then when I started doing the stand-up in the gay venues, it was amazing. It was just amazing to, to go into a city and perform and it be a huge amount of people that knew your video and knew you. Oh, mm-hmm. it blew my mind. It was really fun. It was a little taste of being famous. It was fun. Yeah. So it was. Yeah, it was a little taste of that. I liked it. That's I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be truly famous, but that was enough. <laughs> Trust me. Right. Enough to have a good feeling, to be proud of your work and, and know that people are appreciating your talent. Yeah, that's, who wouldn't like that? You know, that's got to be a good feeling. It's great. I love it. And, and so that's, it just never seems to go away. That's the funny part. Continually with me, that video. It's true. It survived all these years. I encountered a mention of it on Facebook a couple of months ago. It was just some random comment under something and I was like, that's, I mean, it really, you know, things, things stick around forever. And, uh, for that very reason, I'm so glad that we didn't have the internet when I was young because, uh, we were able (laughs) to make all of our stupid. Once you're on the internet, that's forever. That's right. That's right. And I was a theater major and I know I did some wonderful theater, but I'm sure that I did some bad theater too. And so I'm glad that not all of it is, is out there on YouTube. Yeah. Oh, so uh, that's right. Your sister's in this business too. Yep, she sure is. She was in it way before me. She's yeah, she's in the theater. She, she, she started out with Lily Tomlin back in 1972. I mean, she she did tons more. She did Second City Theater. She did. I mean, in tons of movies. And my sister is a real as a legend. She's really known in the business. So, how did your family become so talented and funny? Like, I mean, it seems like your entire family just has a knack for entertaining people and, and putting on a show. How, how do you think that happened? I don't know. My, my mother was incredibly funny yeah. and smart, and I guess she just she just gave us those, those genetics, the crazy funny genes. I mean, we really, I don't know. It's a good question. I have no idea how three of us ended up to be funny, but we did, and that was good. I don't know what I would have done if I wasn't funny. It just would have been a duller life. <laughs> right. For sure. Yeah. You know, and it's enabled, it's enabled me to get through a lot in my life funny. I mean, it's really helped. It helps you get through a lot. Yeah, calm, I mean, it, laughter really is the best medicine. It can it can take you through some uh, some strange things. Yeah, it's true, though. Sometimes you have to do it. I mean, I've had many times. When I when I was in New York this last summer, and I was going to the uh, subways, and it was so crowded that you felt like everybody was getting the flu at the same moment. It was so crowded. Yeah. And we'd stand there, and I, one time I was in the subway, and, you know, the subway's in New York, and everybody's afraid. As soon as you start talking, they think you're nuts. So... I said to the woman sitting in front of me, I said, you know, it's three degrees outside. And I don't know about you, but I think everybody on the subway has the flu. I mean, I started doing my comedy. I started doing it. Everybody was miserable. The trains were late. Everybody was freezing cold. It was such a horrible, horrible day. Everybody's going to work. It was just awful. I started doing my stand-up and everybody was laughing. It was so much fun to make. I mean, I had 50 people laughing hard. And when we got off the train at our stops, it was great. Everybody, this woman said to me, thank you so much for making me laugh. I said, yeah. Well, you know, you're going to be in bed tomorrow with 105 temperature because we all sneezed on each other. It was really fun. <laughs> and so this is what gives me great pleasure. Like, I still get a great high feeling out of being able to, and I, you pick and choose your ta- your moments. I get a great feeling out of making people laugh. I love it. I do it I do it as much as I can. I go to a grocery store, and somebody looks miserable, and I say to them, uh, you know, I'll make fun of the guy in front of me, or I'll say something like, oh, my God, can you imagine how much ice cream that woman's eating? Like, I'll just do something and make them laugh. Good. It's nice. It's a, it's, it's a gift. 
lucky to have it. Yes, most definitely. Uh, you know, that's probably better than uh, a lot of doctors as far as treatment. You know, you can have uh, Prozac or you can have Lois. I think Lois is a little <laughs> bit better. That's right. That's right. Comedy placebo. That's right. That's right. But, um, yeah, it's been really, I'm really lucky. I feel really lucky. My sister's hysterically funny. And the two of us, you know, my sister's in her 60s, and I'm 50, no, I'll be 59 in, like, 10 days. And uh, so we're both getting old, you know, but it's, we go someplace together, and people are treating us like nice old ladies, and we're acting like 10-year-old idiots. <laughs> great. Those two women, are they drinking? Well, can't be drinking. It's only 10 a.m. And then they they don't realize, well, they're nuts, you know, just comedy, crazy comedy ladies. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, you're moving to, to, you're going back and forth now between Florida and Germany. So there are a lot of older people in Florida. So I'm sure there'll be many opportunities for you to spread some sunshine in the Sunshine State. Do you want to know something, though? It's funny that this conception about Florida, there isn't a lot of old people here. It's not where, not where I am. In northern Florida, there might be more like Orlando and... um well, Tampa, but not where I am. Where mm. I am, it's tons of young people. There's not that many old people. I mean, I think the idea, when I first came to Florida, I kept saying there's so many old people. It's not like that. I see tons of young families. There's tons of kids. There's old people, like, anywhere, but there's not, it's not like there's overrun with people in walkers. It's not like a ton of old people. It's yeah. not like that at all. So, uh, you know, this area is, is gay, gay people and lots of Jewish people and and people from other countries, and uh, it's it's really mixed. It's really nice. A nice melting really pot. Great. That's great. Yeah. yeah. So you're going to work on your screenplay while you're in Germany, yeah, and I then well. and yep. then when you come back, what is the plan from there? I don't know. I'll just come back, and you know, I'll do something different. I, I'll keep writing, maybe I'll and do something else. I have a more relaxed part of my career. And yeah. I don't really want to write anymore professionally, and I don't want to do stand up that much. And so I kind of want to steer. I want to go into a different direction. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing about show business, people don't uh, really want you to change. You know, they when you tell people you're not going to do stand up anymore, they go, "Why? You're so funny." I said, "Well, I don't want to. I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. I want to do something different." And if you're if you're in a business like an accountant, then you say you're going to change businesses. Everybody goes, "Oh, that's a good idea." But for some reason, in show business, they just want you to stay with. They don't. They don't quite understand that you can change jobs. Right. You're pigeonholed. You're. There's no reason why you would want to do one thing forever. You know. Yeah. And so. I, I'm really happy. It took me a while to get there, but I'm there, so it's good. Well, that's Let's great. See how it goes. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think a lot of people in, in the industry that you're, I mean, you're, you're you're going, you're going, you're going all the time, and it's very high energy. And creative people have high energy, and so, you know, wanting to relax for a little while and do something a little bit more uh, slow yeah. paced, I think I think that that's probably a very wise decision to make. Yeah, I mean, you run, you run out of energy. You don't really run out of energy, though. You just want it. Your brain tells you you want to do something more interesting. Yeah. Like, you, it's like being in a, I don't know, it's like you're in a playground, and then you certainly, at least from my point of view, doing stand-up comedy on the road after 50 is really hard, and I, I wouldn't want to do it. It's hard. Yeah. And so it's hard to be over 50 and be sitting somewhere with, and doing a show with a bunch of 25-year-olds. It isn't, it isn't fun. Just your whole perspective and purpose is different, and... So I think after 50, you kind of go, okay, great. Now I have all this, uh, I have, I've accumulated all these skills. Now I'm going to do something completely different, you know, and, and make, you know, make $75,000 a year doing something great and, and getting insurance and being treated like an employee instead of like a hooker, you know? Right. So it's a very good decision. I love it. I like it a lot. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, you just, 
that your experiences are so varied. I love that so much. So when you were living out in Hollywood and, quote, living the dream, what was your favorite part of that? In Hollywood? Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I loved, you know, the Hollywood, it was great because, because, you, because it was Hollywood, and just you'd get in your car in the morning and you'd drive somewhere over a canyon, and it was always warm. And I don't know, life was just like a like Disneyland all the time. It was fun, and you and you would act stupid, or you would go out to a club at night. It was fun, you know. It was a lot of fun. It was years of fun, and the clubs were fun. And and the disappointments just seem so silly now. Like you'd go to an audition and not get it, cares. But now you think, wow, oh, I was so dramatic over nothing. Right. And fun part was just being there and and being able to make a living. That was the best part, was if you could figure out how to make a living without going and getting a job, that was the big challenge. So, I mean, I was lucky because I didn't have to work, but my family would give me, send me like 500 bucks here and there, and I was lucky. And then I would just somehow always manage to survive. I did. I always survived there. Yeah. And um, just getting jobs and getting better at what you're doing. And then when I was writing and starting to make really good money, I was like, wow, this is so great, you know? And uh, I don't know, life there was like, it was my, it was really my home for 24 years, 25 years. It's a really good chunk of my life. It's great. That's Listen. fantastic. And that you, that you learned to write from a writing book upon the suggestion of a fellow comic. I just think that that's such a wonderful story because so many people will think, I want to break into something, but I don't know how to do it. And you just decided you were just going to go teach yourself how to do it and break in. That's, you know, yeah. you got moxie. I tell people, if you, you know, writing is free. You don't have to get permission or be asked to do it. You can just do it without anybody telling you. Mm-hmm. You have to ask for it. Tell my friends who want to learn. I say, if you really want to do it, you'll, you'll do it yourself. So you don't need any advice. You still get a book on structure. And then, and then you have to read about how your ideas are good. In fact, because not all ideas are good. Yeah. And are interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I was really, I really wanted to write television. And when I, when I first started doing it, I, it was harder than I thought it was going to be, you know. I mean, it wasn't that easy just to fall into, but it was, you really had to understand, uh, to learn and understand structure and learn and understand character development. It's kind of like, if you're a mathematics, if you're a mathematical mind, which I'm not, but if you are, it would be like that. Like, you feel like a scientist, like you actually have dissect something that feels academic in a way. And it was fun. I absolutely love going to work. I go to work, sit there, and it was like you worked horrible hours, but, you know, at the end of the year, you would get to go for two months and just have fun, make some money, and go have fun. It's fantastic. Sure. Right? Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah. So you've yeah. got some some fond memories, and and you were recently there's a documentary that PBS made that's coming out in July, and you're uh, you were featured in it. It's about women in comedy. Is that right? I was one of the people they interviewed. Yeah, I wasn't really featured, but I mean, I, they have a, a series called Makers. Mm-hmm. And it's on PBS, and I guess they did it last year as well, but they did six new um, documentaries. And it's all about women in different aspects of how women changed, uh, have changed America, you know. So it's like women in, uh, women who went to the space program, women in uh, history, uh, the uprising of the feminist movement. And then it's uh, all other areas. But one of them is women in comedy and television. And boy, I gotta tell you, I am in some good company. I'm some great company, Chelsea Handler and... I mean, amazing people that I got. I don't know how I got into this, but I was asked by the production company. They called me and said, we saw your, um, uh, I did an interview for a book a couple of years ago called I Killed. And it's such the expression when you did really well on stage. Mm-hmm. I killed means I did a really good, I had a great set. It's a comedy show. But so I was interviewed in this book called I Killed. And um, 
they saw it and they said, we love what you said, so we, we're doing this documentary, would you like to be part of it? Are you kidding? Yeah, I was in New York. Yes, I'd love to be part of it. So, trust me, it's, it's a really honorable uh, series to be part of. Oh, that's great! I I can't wait to watch that. I I'm I'm glad that they chose comedy as a a subject, you know, to put in there because it is such a huge part of American culture and world culture. I mean, we all we all need to laugh, we all need to be entertained, and to think of that because at some point, I hope that we can overcome fully overcome the stereotype that women are yeah. unequal to men on, on any level. I mean, forget comedy, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we really, in all areas. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see that, that, that documentary. It should, be, it should be really good. It's really good. It's really fiercely feminist. So I love the, the approach. is really uh, um, incredible. Like the women who are producing it, they, their interview was so uh, female-oriented. Like, they were asking, uh, when you worked on Roseanne, what was it like? You know, how come Roseanne never had these female showrunners? Like, why, why was it like that? And what was your experience when you, when you were on staff? How was it? You know, how was your voice ever heard? It was that, that kind of interview. So it was really hardcore. Yeah. And, and at first I kept like, well, I was really caught off guard. I had to really shake my head and go, okay, dude, this is hardcore. Right. This is them wanting me to be just totally honest. And Open. I, I was. Yeah. I was like, you know, working for Roseanne because they really were fascinated by her. And my, my experience working with her, because I really, I really respected her and working on her show was huge. And it's really hard to explain why there was no female showrunner. And it was really hard to explain because I, I still to this day can't tell you why, whether it was the network or the production company or whether it was Roseanne. So what exactly is a showrunner? What was, what, what is the showrunner role? Showrunner, the showrunner is the exec producer, the person who is, well, actually Roseanne was the exec producer, but the showrunner is the person who's literally sitting in the room and is the traffic cop, you know? Okay. The person who makes sure how the stories are being written and what's being generated and, and what's being written. And you have to, you know, you have to churn out the stories every week. And he or he, and he or she has to answer to the network and to the star, you know? That's the person who's like the head. Yeah. Yeah. And so they make the decisions usually creatively. They're the ones who are responsible for all the things that happen. And a lot of times they're not, sometimes they're not even writers, sometimes they're just administrative people, but they have a creative side. It just depends on who you have. I was lucky to have pretty much creative, really good showrunners. It's a really good job. It's a really high stress job. But, uh, yeah, as far as women, I mean, now there's lots of female showrunners. But back then I, I wonder, I often wonder if the reason she didn't have any was because she wasn't allowed to have one. I, I almost, I almost am inclined to think she just, they told her, no, we don't want a female showrunner, they're not strong enough. I wonder if that's what they said to her. But I can't imagine that Roseanne would just say, I don't want any women running my show. You know what I mean? Right. But. Yeah. I, there certainly were enough women coming through those doors that could have run the show, that's for sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You know, I mean, we gotta support each other. We. I can tell you that Roseanne is, is a, is a fierce feminist. You know, when she, on Facebook, she books and puts herself down as a witch. That's who she is. You know, she doesn't say she has a religion. She's a really incredible person. Sure. She actually participated in the um, Unite Against Rape program that I was That's running right. with, with um, UniteWomen.org. I mean, she was the first 
notable person to, you know, step up and her feminism is, is clear. And so I think the reason that she agreed to participate in the United Against Rape is because I dropped your name. <laughs> you think so? Yeah. I mean, she might have done it otherwise. I, 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 you know, you know, but I mean, I'm not saying she doesn't have a huge heart and wouldn't have done it otherwise. But I do think that uh, you guys worked together for a long time and you respected each other. And I think yeah. in, in, in career and in life, we all have, we all have to stick together and support each other. Because if we don't, you know, it's, it's just a, a, a bad scene. Yeah, it really is. So many young women in charge. It's so great to see, like, one of the one of the people at the production company, the vice president was female and young and smart. And it's just it's just different than it was when I came up, you know, in show business. It's like there's women in their, their early 30s who are running these companies and women who are young. Who, this one woman came in and she's one of the supervisors. She's like, I have to look at the situation now what you guys did. I need to look at it now. It's like, she's just confident and certain and... There's not that, oh, hi, is it okay? I'm fine, not apologetic. You know, she's going to doing her job. And then she said, I'm not sure I love this. This doesn't work. And then doing a good job. Like, it's, I don't know. I can't explain it. It just doesn't have any apologies. It's just, I, I, I have an education and I'm smart and it's my job and I'm going to do it. Right. That's it. It's something to do with being, like, yeah, uh, I'm not a tough broad. I'm not a dyke. I'm just, uh, maybe I am, but it doesn't have anything to do with anything. Like, all the, all the bullshit stereotypes. I just stripped away in so many ways. Yeah. I can't tell you. And New York City was the best example of that because every place that I went, there were so many women running things. And I just, I loved it. I loved it so much. I can't tell you. It was so great to, to see that your boss was 36 years old and really smart. And I would say to you, oh, my God. I remember this woman said to me, I can't believe you wrote books on Roseanne's show. That's so incredible. I love that show. Like, it was honest and sweet. It was like, oh, hello, dear. Are you working on the show? It wasn't patronizing. It was just right. admired, openly admired you for what you've done, you know. And uh, and these women are just, I mean, fantastic. That's what I loved about New York City was that. I really think the sisterhood is strengthening. I really do. You, you know what I mean by the sisterhood? Just people uh, supporting each other. Yes, men and women together, but especially women with other women. Um because we all succeed when someone succeeds, you know, so there's no reason to root for anyone's failure. Although I imagine still at the lower levels of comedy in the comedy clubs, as you mentioned, was the case that that competition is still there. Because when you're both vying to to get something, wow, that would be a really hard life. I really can't imagine that. It's a really hard life. I mean, when a young woman comes into a comedy club, it depends. I mean, some of them are just tough. So if you're you don't have any support, you've got to be pretty strong to keep going. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know what it's like now. I'm sure it's quite different. There's tons of women. So I don't know. I mean, thank, I'm so glad there's so many good female comics. Oh, so many. I mean, when I was doing it, it was me and, uh, you know, Diane Nichols and like a handful of women. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that many. It wasn't that, oh, it was a lot of us. And so now it's like 20 handfuls, you know, of women. That's great. So That's really yeah, it's, great. It's pretty impressive. Absolutely. But, but we're making strides, and the, the women's rights movement is having a big resurgence, and, um, you know, and we're talking, you know, like the Makers documentary that you're in for PBS. I mean, we're talking about women, we're talking about LGBT issues, we're really, I think we're, I think our society is seeking to unify. I really do, despite all of the divisions, I think... We've been so divided for so long that we're trying to find some way to find common ground. We have to. I, I agree with you. I think that's great. I think that it's, it's great to be alive at this time to see it 
slowly coming together, but it's slow. Boy, it's slow. Yeah. And but I'm happy to be here to to be part of it and to be part of something. Uh, the stuff in there it was so great to be part of that to have a voice and that was huge and and to be asked to do it and with whatever my opinion was that added to that show you know that I was part of something in television that was important and Roseanne was a was an enormous you know part of changing the face of TV and she really was oh it was an, uh, absolutely it was it was uh, it changed changed pop culture it changed sitcom it changed everything yeah yeah really did plus the voice of the housewife. It was the voice of the housewife that was like a bear, you know. She wasn't like the little meek voice. She was the one saying, I'm not doing that, you know, or whatever. She was defiant, and that's what was so great about her show. She was the defiant blue-collar housewife who said to her husband, you know what, I'm not having sex with you tonight, or I'm not, or whatever it was. This wasn't done in a cute way. It was, it was brutally honest, and she was and she was really tough and strong. God, she was so good in the show. I remember at Scripture, we, we could write so much stuff for her, and she was so good. You know, she just, she stuffed it down your throat and, and, and you ended up laughing. It was great. She was so strong. That's fantastic. I just, I just love her. I mean, I owe her everything for my career. My, my career, which I owe my career to Missy Shore and Roseanne Barr. Aww. Those the two women who made my career. Yeah, they really did. I mean, that was pretty much it, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Missy Shore, the owner of the comedy store in Roseanne. And then, of course, my partner, Anne, who is in Germany, mm-hmm. uh, who, um, puts up when I she finds things that I've done like I have some, some pictures and stuff some little awards and stuff that I've gotten over the years and she frames them and puts them up it's so great she's so sweet that she honors it you know she thinks it's so she's so proud of the things I've done and more than I am and so she makes make sure that it's visible it's really sweet that's so, great I love that about yeah. Her. yeah didn't you recently get um a writer's guild award yeah it's like a, I don't know what it is it's actually um I don't know what it is she has a couple of things up the second thing we did, Roseanne, uh, we had our first 100th episode or something. They, they gave us all the variety and they thanked all the writers. So that's, like, Anne put that in a, in a frame and put it up. And then there's a bunch of other stuff, you know, just photographs and just, uh, so sweet. Yeah. So that's the kind of, that's the kind of person you want in your life. She's so cool. Lois, thank you so much for your candor and for sharing all of your experiences. It sounds like you've had a, a fun and exciting ride, and I'm so glad that you joined us tonight to share all of that with us. Tonight. Thank you. It was really fun to talk about it. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. And I know that our audience has really enjoyed it, and thanks to everyone who was listening tonight. This podcast is owned by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and we'd like to thank our sponsor, Michael Lowndes, and PML Media at pmlmedia.com. And thanks to all of you who listened tonight. This was such a great show. I enjoyed speaking with Lois, and I've enjoyed connecting with all of you. Uh, There's nothing better than connecting with laughter. So until next time, this is Shannon Fisher for The Authentic woman and have a great week thanks good night